The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Whole Health Cure. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science behind true health and living a physically, emotionally, and spiritually fulfilled life. Today, we're going to be talking about helping kids and families develop healthy eating habits and how we can help our kids develop a healthy body image. Our guest is Dr. Linda Craighead. Dr. Craighead is a professor of psychology at Emory University. She has over three decades of clinical work and research experience in the field of eating disorders and weight concerns. She also spends a lot of time training therapists, counselors, and dietitians on how to train them in counseling people on, in weight loss programs. Dr. Craighead, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and share what I know with the families and their kids. Yeah. So as a mother, I am very personally interested in this topic because we all know how difficult that balance can be between helping our kids eat healthy, but not bringing too much attention on their body image so that we can help them have a very positive outlook on the choices that they make and their relationship with food. Let me start by asking you, how did you begin working in this field? It's actually a pretty long story, but I'll try to make it short. I started actually right after I got my Ph.D. My very first job was to manage a research project um, for obese adults. And so I started on the weight loss end of things. But as I treated people, I saw there were very big distinctions between people who were simply overweight and people who were overweight but really had emotional overinvestment and distress about their weight and their body image and that we needed to treat them pretty differently. So as I went along in my career, I took what I learned from traditional obesity treatment, which tends to be very focused on diet, nutrition, and exercise, um, and kind of the external cues to eat. And I took my psychology training and focused more on the inside, on the internal cues to eat. So my whole approach developed to Uh, do what I call appetite awareness training, which is to train people to tune back into their own body cues instead of being so in their head and trying to follow a diet or trying to count calories, uh, trying to do all these very artificial ways of regulating their weight, um, which are very effortful and most people cannot keep them up long term, so they don't have much long term success. As far as we know, almost anybody can lose weight if they try hard enough, but very few people can maintain weight loss, and some people, um, they just can't even maintain the effort long enough to even lose any weight. So it is a real effortful process, and we don't want, especially when we're talking about kids, we don't want it to be an effortful process. We want them to learn to use their body like it was intended. And in my way of thinking, we were born with a fairly natural appetite regulation system. And for centuries or millennium, it worked relatively well. We didn't have large rates of obesity or large rates of eating disorders, although both have always been in our culture. But the current excessive amounts of obesity and rising rates of eating disorders tell us that we're on the wrong track by focusing so much on the external, on all the food, the diets, the diet foods, 
um, all these very effortful ways that are not very sustainable. So my work really started working on how to help adults get back in touch with their um, internal cues and learn to regulate their own hunger and satiety so they feel in control and that they could be comfortable in what I call the food-rich environment. Um, Because if you're in the Stone Age, you don't have to worry about eating too much. Now you do. So I I started working with adults, and then I became so um, feeling like I wish, and they often told me too, I wish I had known about this when I was a teenager or when I first started worrying about my weight. So I started going lower and lower. And fortunately, a couple of years ago, started I had the opportunity to work with um, a wonderful 10-year-old, very overweight uh, young man who was already having medical problems with cholesterol and fatty liver and high blood pressure. Um, And in his family, his dad was very overweight and had just had quadruple bypass surgery. So I ended up being called up by the Dr. Oz show. And they flew me up to New York to meet this family. But the family was from Atlanta and they wanted follow-up care. So I worked with this family for a year, and that's really the start of what I'm gonna talk about today, which is how do I apply this to families and their kids? Um, There are also applications for adults and for more eating disordered behavior, bulimia, purging, things like that. But for today, let's, let's focus on sort of typical families and their kids who are concerned about healthy eating. And you made just such a great point is you're talking about this wonderful path, which I love because you have to be open to how life takes you and the directions that it wants to take you. Um, But that we are so focused and and somewhat obsessed about the latest diet, right? There's always the, you know, do you eat low carb, high carb, high fat, low carb, eat this, don't eat that. And as you mentioned, these are so external. And what we really can do in a sustainable way is pay attention to when we're hungry, when we're full, and be you know really mindful of what our own bodies are telling us. And if we can change our relationship with food by paying attention to the inward signals, we will probably be successful, or even more successful, I should say, in the long term. And to our listeners, I should uh, mention that Dr. Craighead is the author of the Appetite Awareness Workbook, How to Listen to Your Body and Overcome Binging, Overeating, and Obsession with Food. Um, and this workbook does exactly what she's mentioning, which is this cognitive behavioral therapy approach to guiding people. Um, and I know this is a big topic, but can you summarize how people get from that outward to that inward focus? Are there quick things that listeners can do to just even start getting on that path? Well, as I sort of put it in this book, this book is really geared towards adults, and we'll talk later on about the the book that I have now for children. But the point is primarily to increase awareness. So have people pay attention instead of what we call mindless eating. So we're training people to do mindful eating, meaning whenever you're eating, you're stopping and paying attention before you eat and making a conscious decision about, oh, am I hungry? If I'm hungry, what would taste good and make my stomach feel good? And that you stay tuned in and while you're eating instead of reading a book or watching TV or talking to other people. You can do those, but you still have to check in and stay tuned in so that you notice when you get full. 
because most of us won't if we're doing some other activity. We won't even be paying attention, and most of us can easily eat way more than we need uh, without even batting an eye. So the first step is always awareness. And people get frustrated because when you first become aware, you can't change it. You're just aware, and then you're even more upset. But we reassure people that awareness is the first step. And as soon as you start to be aware, then you can start to change. Because if you aren't aware, you have no idea what to change about your life or about the cues. And it's really impossible. So that's a good positive step when you start to becoming aware. Every time you go past what we call moderate fullness, we hope the first step is just your kind of light bulb goes off in your head and you're going like, oh, I'm starting to feel full. I really should think about whether I really need any more or not. And if we can do that one step, uh, we've got people way on the way to recovery. And then the, the second step is more to deal with what we call emotional eating, which is when you, you're eating because you're upset or you're celebrating, you don't you know you're not hungry. Lots of times we eat because we're hungry, but lots of times we eat because we want food. Sure. We so celebrate we have, food. <laughs> that's we, right. It is a lot of things. It's a stress reliever, so we eat for a lot of reasons. So, so the whole you know, second half, after people become aware and start realizing, oh, don't eat when I'm not hungry and stop eating as soon as I start to feel full, then we've got to deal with the more emotional Issues And that really centers on helping people distinguish when they're eating for uh, food value and when they're eating for fun and pleasure or comfort, soothing themselves. And if they're doing the latter, then we have two strategies. One strategy is to learn to do that better. <laughs> and when I say better, I don't mean eat more. What I mean is to be stay, again, really aware and notice if when you eat those foods for fun and pleasure and comfort, are they actually doing that? How much good are they doing you? So we have people write down their what their choice is and then say, was it worth it or was it not worth it? And we're trying to reduce what we call regret episodes, which is every time you finished eating it and you say, oh, I wish I hadn't eaten that. I didn't really need to eat that and it doesn't, wasn't that great. I'm not that happy right now. So we teach people to do better emotional eating. Everybody emotional eats. I've been doing this longer than anyone else, right? And I still emotional eat sometimes. But I try to do what we call effective emotional eating, meaning just eating enough to get the good part and not so much that I end up feeling bad afterwards. And also helping people develop alternatives. There are lots of other alternatives. And with kids, this is really important, that they have to have a, a good long list of distracting, engaging, fun, other activities. So when you know they're not hungry and they just want a snack and treat, that you can guide them towards other enjoyable activities instead of just saying, no, you can't have that. It's not time. I know you're not hungry. That's not a helpful thing. Helpful thing is to redirect. Oh, I don't think you probably are so hungry right now because we just had lunch, but I bet you're kind of bored why don't we go do this? Let's go to the pool or let's take a walk or, you know, call up grandma, whatever you can come up with. Changing their focus when they're asking for food and you think it's not either an appropriate time, they've already eaten or they've already eaten enough um, and you think they should um, stop eating 
or if they're making sort of really unwise choices, again, the idea is to redirect them rather than just always being the no. We tell parents, don't be the food police. And that's why we come up with this metaphor about the dogs, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, so to have parents redirect children, how important is it that parents themselves have that awareness, as you mentioned, to get good at emotionally eating? It it seems that otherwise you take the kid's request at face value, I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. So does the first step start with the parents? Ideally, yes. Now, I have worked with kids, you know, especially older adolescents, without their parents, but we prefer to work with parents who are willing to come in with their kids. And in fact, that's our our current strategy. And we have a a study we're just starting now where we're working with parents and um, adolescents like 12 to 18 who are either overweight or really at risk uh, of becoming overweight. And we have the parents and the child come in together. And one of us meets with the parent, one of us meets with the child. And um, we help the parent learn to get in touch with their hunger and fullness, whether or not they have weight issues. Actually, most of them do because the rate of obesity in parents of overweight kids is extremely high. But whether or not they do, they learn the vocabulary. They learn how to talk the talk. We have our descriptive words for everything so they can use the same vocabulary. And then we have someone meet with the kid and um, teach them the the book that we wrote, we use send the book home with them so they can reread it, and it has nice, funny cartoons. So it's amusing most to most of them. <laughs> and they can refer back to that. And then, it, then we send the parents home to essentially do the real work, which is consistently at home, refer back to the book, talk about their own hunger and fullness, redirect the kids to, hmm, are, are you really hungry or are you just bored? Uh, are you really hungry or are you just think, oh, it would taste good. So, uh, yes, we try to train the parents and the teachers and the children together so the parents can teach the kids. We can't be around enough to really teach the children. We have to rely on parents. Right. It seems as a parent, as you mentioned, there's a struggle in that we can't control everything our kids do. They're going to be at other people's homes. They're going to be doing activities, parties, et cetera. And to your point, teaching the kids to make those healthy choices is really our challenge. The The book that you referenced, so Training Your Inner Pup to Eat Well, Let Your Stomach Be Your Guide, for our listeners, is cute, adorable. I've read it with my kids. I think it's wonderful in that your children can be different age groups, and there is value in this book, whether you sit down and read it with younger kids or have older kids read it and just discuss it with you. I I think it's such a fun way to, to get kids to understand what you're talking about, about that awareness. So it's, I thought, just fabulous. So thank you for sharing that. Can you kind of talk through, really, I, I see two scenarios as a parent of some struggles, and, and maybe we can talk about both. The first is just good, healthy habits for life. So when we have our kids for the 18 years that they're typically home, how can we feel that when they're ready to kind of be independent, kind of go off on their own, that we have instilled habits that for life will carry them through And then the second is if we're seeing our kids gain a little bit of weight 
and we don't like the trend, how can we as parents in a loving, supportive, positive way redirect while still maintaining a really good, positive body image for our kids? So let's start with the first, maybe the the easier of the two, because I think the second one's really hard. The second one is harder, but I think they do both come from the same place which is you have to have an explanation for your child in either case. You know, why should they have these healthy eating habits? Why should they be maybe a little worried about their weight going, you know, up a little more than it should? So in both cases, you you need to have a kid-friendly rationale. So that's why we developed this metaphor of the dog, because um, most kids are either have had a dog or know someone who's had a dog, or they basically understand that you don't let dogs eat whatever they want. And they don't feel badly about that. They, they might like to give their dog treats, but they understand intuitively that they, are, they should not give this dog a whole bag of treats and they shouldn't give the dog, you know, a whole plate of hamburger, even though the dog would eat it. Some dogs won't, but most will. So they have this intuitive understanding that we're talking about something like a natural phenomena. It's true of animals, and, oh, well, that could be true of me, too. So we tell them, think about it. It's like you have this little dog, this little puppy inside yourself. That's your appetite. That's what makes you want to eat. So just like you take care of a, a puppy if you're given one or a dog, you have to take care of that puppy inside yourself because nobody else is going to. Your parents will help you as you're growing up, but once you're out on your own, it's really going to be up to you. And what we know is that dogs have to be fed by their owners. Um, In a food-rich world, they will will gain weight too. And there's, you know, sort of unfortunately sad pictures of really overweight dogs that um, you can see on the Internet and in various stories in popular magazines. Because we know, yes, dogs are just like people. Most of them will gain weight if somebody, meaning their owner, doesn't teach them healthy habits and make sure that they continue to do that. So that helps the kids see it in a not punitive way. It's like it's not you're not doing that for your dog because you're mad at him or you think he's irresponsible or you... Um, just want to control him. So parents are not doing that to you either. Parents are helping you learn good habits because they know, just like you have to train a dog, they have to train you. And unlike a dog, they're not going to be there all the time to, to maintain your eating habits. So they want you to learn your own eating habits. So when we start out with the dog book, that's what the first part is, is helping the kids understand that metaphor and in fact, in, in our uh, some of the camps that are, are done at Choa, they actually have um, people bring in therapy dogs and have the parent, the children talk about dogs and training dogs and why you don't give dogs everything they want to eat. And um, they have actually done a, a wonderful job of training some of these dogs to eat grapes, carrots, you know, healthier foods to make the point that. Even dogs can learn to eat different foods, even though that's not their initial preference. So we're trying to use a dog analogy to help kids understand that this is not a punitive thing. This is because you do this for your dog because you love your dog. You want your dog to be healthy and run and play and 
stay with you a long time. And that's why your parents want to help you, not because they're trying to be mean or um, just, you know, limit what you can eat. That they really, they're doing this because they love you, just like you love a dog and you take care of a dog. So that, I think, helps with the psychological part of it with the kids. And then as far as habits are concerned, it helps because you ask them, like, well, so how do you feed a dog healthily? Usually what they know is, well, okay, there are certain times of the day you feed them morning and night, and you give them a certain amount, and you give them some treats but not really big treats. Uh, You don't give them chocolate. You you certainly don't give them diet soda. You don't give them soda. So they can kind of make the transition to like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. That's how you have to do it with dogs. Well, maybe I need to do that with myself. So that's how we get the fundamentals of you eat at regular scheduled meals. You don't skip meals. If you get too hungry, you'll eat too much. Um, And you make healthy choices because there's some things that are good for dogs' bodies and there's some things that are good for kids' bodies. And... um, you don't, um, uh, and you and you kind of are careful. Uh, this is for the latter question, so maybe I'll save it. For for real kids, the most in, the two important choices are eat regularly, eat at least three times a day, preferably for kids five times a day. You know, three meals and two snacks, um, and not a lot of snacking in between. And um, Good choices, you know, healthier choices, things that are good for your physical body, but small amounts of treats. And that's how in the book we talk about, you know, what is a good treat. A good treat is a small treat, and it's not a super frequent treat. So that really if you were talking about three habits for children, it's really just those. Plus, I will have to say, exercise. We don't focus so much on that, but obviously that's an important part of the equation. Our kids are too sedentary these days, and anything you can do to get them into regular activity or do regular activities with them is going to support their healthy weight management. That's just not the part that we focus on. Sure. So it seems that there are two parts to getting kids to eat healthy. One is this great analogy of pets, and I think most kids understand and relate to, hey, this, I'm doing this for my dog because I love my dog, and this is how my dog can eat healthily. The other part is just as dog owners provide meals to dogs, parents are usually the ones providing the food and the food options to kids. What's the role of parents after they've explained that this is a healthy food and this is why you eat healthy, I'm doing this because I love you, we have to provide those healthy foods. Mm-hmm. So as parents, you know, do we obviously need to create healthy meals, provide healthy snacks? Do we leave those available when they open the refrigerator so that that's the first thing they reach for? But how do parents operationalize that understanding once kids have that healthy mindset? It partly depends on the particular kid. If the kid really goes easily for that and they are very motivated, as some of them are, they really get onto this and they start reading food labels and they uh, they, they talk telling their parents what healthy foods are and what aren't healthy foods. So if you're lucky enough to have one of those kids, then you can just have the options available there, have them easily available, have them pre-cut if they're vegetables and fruits, have them pre-packaged in small amounts. Both of those things are critical. You do not 
even if you want to give kids some treat options, you don't want there to be a whole bag of cookies or an open box of M&Ms on the table. Uh, that's asking too much um, <laughs> for most adults and certainly for most kids. <laughs> and so, puppies. <laughs> yes, and puppies, right. Um, so, yes, the parents are in charge of providing healthy options and providing them in uh, packaged amounts or served amounts so that the kids start to learn what is a regular serving. And um, thirdly, not having a lot of particularly tasty treats available too easily. So that sort of limiting the options for treats but making it a very positive thing like, oh, yes, we'll have, you know, we'll have treats two or three times a week. And we'll decide as a family what it's going to be. Are we going to go out for ice cream? Are we going to, you know, bake a small pan of brownies? So you engage the kids in the decision about what's a treat so that it's not like you're totally in control of it and they can't have, there's nothing, there's no forbidden foods. There's only amounts and times of foods. And is it okay to view a brownie as a treat? Because I've also heard from some people that, why don't you call an apple a treat or some strawberries a treat so it doesn't feel like when you're not getting the, quote, treat, you're getting somehow punished for eating this healthy food. I tend to use the word a sweet treat or a healthy treat. Okay. (laughs) So that, yes, I encourage kids to do healthy treats and say, oh, it's okay every once in a while if you want one of the, you know, you want one of those special sweet treats. Um, so that helps to not dichotomize again. We don't want foods to be in such severe categories. And that even allows you to be a little gray. It's like, okay, well, if you want to, okay, you love strawberries, but you'd like to have a little ice cream with your strawberries. Okay, well, that's that's good. And, um, and you want brownies. Well, maybe we'll work on looking up a brownie, a healthier brownie instead of getting the pre-mix at the grocery store. And we'll learn to make brownies with applesauce. So there are ways there for you to not make it a dichotomy between good foods and bad foods. But there are, there are meals and planned snacks, which should be always healthy foods, like fruits and vegetables or whole wheat toast and peanut butter. And then there's treats, and they can be healthier treats, or they can be sweeter, you know, treats that need to be managed a little bit more carefully. So we try not to get into too much, um, like you said, of, of dichotomizing that these things are okay and these things aren't okay. And how important is it, or is it not, for families to eat at home, home prepared meals, or even involving kids in the cooking process. You know, obviously that teaches kids a skill set. And there's a psychology, if I chop the vegetables, I'm going to eat those vegetables. But how important is that? You know, because parents are so busy, a lot of families now will go through a drive through. And and that's the modern dinner table. Mm Well, I think, you know, there is, there is ideal and there is reality, like you said. So I think it's, imp- it's good to have that as an aspirational goal. We actually know from scientific studies that families that have dinner together and kids that um, help learn to cook do tend to have healthier eating habits and make better choices. So, yes, as much as you can do that, do it. But... The reality is that's not always going to be possible. So you want to, again, incorporate the principles into whatever you're doing. 
you can go nowadays to McDonald's and make a relatively healthy choice. The kids can get apple slices instead of french fries. Or you can split something, you know, an order of fries between two kids or between you and your kid. So there are always ways to make a healthier choice, either in terms of type of food or amount. And I think a lot of people forget about the amount part. They're just focused on is it a healthy food or not. And what dietitians like to say is that all food in moderation is healthy except for some totally empty calorie foods like soda. <laughs> and I do encourage parents to actually just put soda on the forbidden list as like there's no reason a child needs to eat soda, drink soda. Um, there are other options. There's flavored waters. There's um, juices that don't have sugar added. You can give your child enough choices without getting them in the soda habit, and that is a pretty dangerous habit. The, the health consequences of that we know are pretty bad. So, of course, you generally have to model not having too much soda yourself, <laughs> which is sometimes a little bit of a challenge. But to the extent possible, I would not make soda really an option for children. There's plenty of other options, and children need to learn to drink water. If they don't learn to drink water when they're a kid, they usually come up to be adults, that somehow water is not okay. I mean, it's not a, not really an option. And that doesn't help them when they're adults. So teach kids that water is a something you drink with meals. You drink it when you're thirsty. Um, so, it's not a, a non-food. It's a legitimate drink. So as parents, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Aspire home-cooked when not possible. Just get the best choice at the closest place that is convenient to you mm -hmm. and even and watch the amounts and the amounts of the treats um are important or too. even the high fat foods because that's the problem with those meals like you go and get a happy meal it's not that um not that happy <laughs> not that happy right and even if you get the if you get the apple slices fine but they may not you know they may eat some apple, but they might want some french fries too. So again, with purchasing food outside, quantity is as much of a problem as the quality of the food. But yes, your aspiration is the fewest possible processed foods and the, um, the most moderate amounts of the highly processed treat foods that the kids really want. And so you help them to understand and sort of use that vocabulary of like, yeah, we can have these special foods, but those are ones that we need to be uh, really mindful yeah. that this is, we can have a little taste of that, but if we eat a whole lot of that, that's not healthy for us. It wouldn't be healthy for a dog. It's not healthy for any living being, you know, any living creature. Yeah. And, and now the harder part. So as a parent, if you are noticing that your child is gaining weight, and you want to curb that and redirect, what are, I'm going to start with the what are the things you don't do? Because I think in a very loving way, sometimes parents may make comments that kind of backfire mm -hmm. and start to make kids a little more self-conscious or even kind of have the opposite effect where then they don't even want to think about food and so what are, start, let's start with the no list. What are things parents should not do? 
Right. So the first no is to talk about weight, meaning numbers, meaning um, the child's weight or your weight. A lot of parents talk about their own weight and overweight too much in front of their children, (laughs) which gives it the wrong emphasis. Don't talk about other people's weight. Don't talk about other children's weight. So the major message is talk about health and don't, don't mention weight. Weight is really not the end goal here, particularly with children. Um, what's the end goal is for them to feel better and be healthier. And so the focus is on, okay, I've noticed you're um, you know, eating a lot of these more sweet foods, and I'm thinking this isn't quite as healthy, and I'm a little bit worried about um, you're eating healthy. And so can we talk about what would be some healthy choices that you would like? So try redirecting the kid to identifying what are um, healthier foods that they actually like and then encouraging them to experiment if they don't have a very large number of healthy foods they like, really reinforcing them for trying new things. So the other thing we know from tasting is that For unfamiliar foods or for things with a little different taste, it takes multiple small tasting options for people to to become familiar with a taste. We don't like unfamiliar tastes. So anything that your child has not regularly eaten, they're probably going to not be real excited about having. So you want to introduce that in very small amounts and not set up any things about you have to eat this before you get whatever uh, and particularly that you have to eat any large amounts of it. So you can make small amounts like, oh, I would like for you to taste this before you have what you usually like. And do that repeatedly. Don't make a big deal out of it. And generally speaking, the kids will improve their range. If they're really, really narrow, you probably should talk to a dietitian because they may need a little more direction. But uh, and some kids are. They, they're very, very narrow in their taste preferences. So that's the no list. The positive list is um, listening from the child if they have any concerns. Sometimes they have concerns and they aren't telling you. Um, if they say anything about being teased or make comments about other girls who are thinner than they Um, or they aren't being picked for sports. So anything that you might hook into to identify some motivation that would be appealing to them, because that's what's important both for kids and adults, is for us to actually find what I call the true motivation. The motivation is not to lose weight. The motivation is to get something else, either to be able to go on a sports team or to be able to, uh, or to not be teased or to um, feel better or sleep better. Something else has got to be in there besides just losing weight. And that's what you want to focus on and try to help the child let you identify that. If it's like they want to wear more stylish clothes, you know that they're having, when they go to pick out clothes, they don't have as many choices or they don't like the way certain things look on them and say, oh, okay, well, that's something we could work on. Um, Is that something that's really important to you? And then you sort of set up a reward like, okay, well, let's work on making some healthier eating choices. And when um, 
you've made some progress with that, we can um, go look for some newer, more stylish clothes that you'll feel happy about wearing. So it's a, it's not a really a formula, but the idea is to try to tap into whatever you think the child's own motivation might be, which often is clothes if they're in that preteen, teen age when we're trying to worry about it. If they're boys, it's often about sports performance. Um, if they're younger and they have, you can't really identify any of their own motivation, they seem really oblivious to it, well, then you just do your own thing. You just manage their food and talk about how important it is to be healthy and how good you feel when you eat these foods, and you just be the parent. And as they get a little bit older, you'll be able to identify some motivations that will help them to get more on board with the idea of um, eating in a healthier way in order to keep uh, a healthy weight. But for the young kids, they don't even really quite have that connection about the eating healthy and the weight. So you can't really, and it's not a good idea to bring up weight too early. Yeah, those are great points. So again, as parents, the biggest thing on the no list is don't focus on weight, mention weight, talk about your own weight. And the biggest things on the positive list of things you should do are help your kids experiment to find healthy foods that they like and try and find their motivation to get them on the right path. Yes. And I would put in there with the weight, don't weigh them. Um, The only weighing that needs to be done should probably be done at the doctor's office. They will keep you on track. If, you're, if your child is at all into the worrisome category, then use your physician. Talk to them ahead of time without the child about your concerns, and if it's appropriate, you may be over-concerned. The physician may say, no, um, you know, don't, don't bring too big a deal out of it. Yes, we're going to monitor it and say, okay, I'd like to monitor this like in three months or six months, just come in for a weigh-in, because that puts it on the doctor and not on you. And uh, if they're health concerns, the doctor can make that connection for them better than you can. Um, But that means you don't weigh them at home because that over-focuses on the numbers. And unfortunately, when you have seen a lot of adult eating disorders, you know that it's really not a good idea to focus on the numbers. There, There are no magic numbers for anybody. If you can't pass the eyeball test, there's no reason to look at the numbers. Right. Oh, well, thank you so much for your work and for sharing all this great advice. Um, are there any final bits of advice you think parents should know? I think the main thing is to remember that eating is one of our primary pleasures in life. And this is true for you and is true for your children. And so it's extremely important not to make this a punitive, aversive um, approach to eating. It's very important for eating to remain a valued, enjoyable experience for your children, that they aren't anxious about it, that they enjoy food, that they enjoy socializing with food. And uh, because if you can't keep it positive, then that means you need some professional help yourself because um, it is one of our are great pleasures and um, should be used that way. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.